Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, 101.3, various other frequencies, and on our web, www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bowes-Taylor. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbacks, Wordsworth Books, gives us choice reading in fiction and non-fiction for these early autumn days. Philip Todras chats to internationally acclaimed photographer Roger Ballon about his new, intriguingly named monograph. It's called The Theatre of Apparitions, a copy of which publisher Thames and Hudson is giving away in our Easy Peasy competition. Beverly Rose Muller highly recommends the spellbindingly brilliant The Iceberg, a memoir by Marion Coots while Mike Fitzjames wickedly whacks our nerves with two spellbinding thrillers. Vanessa Levenstein escaped into non-fiction with No Wall Too High, One Man's Extraordinary Escape from Mao's Darkest Prison by Zhu Hongqi. Melvin Minar turns, to, turns his embedded gaze to two art books, Hanging on a Wire, with photographs by Sophia Klasser, and 1994, with photographs by Peter Hichu. We chat to entomologist Eric Holm about the amazingly sophisticated and technological world of southern African insects, detailed in his unputdownable Insectopedia. Publisher Strake is giving away a copy to a lucky winner. Philippa Schaefitz hauntingly finds District 6 Heis Combase more than a cookbook. It's a social history of a community displaced. While Cindy Moritz is moved by the tale and the stylish telling in The Park by local writer Gail Schimmel. <clears throat> Do listen up for our easy peasy competition question to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers or Roger Ballon's The Theatre of Apparitions, or Eric Holmes' Insectopedia. Andrew Marshbanks, a beguiling bundle of books, fiction and non-fiction from Wordsworth Books. Hi, Gary. Well, thank you. I have some amazing books this month. The first one came out last year and has just uh, arrived in paperback. It's been a huge bestseller all around the world, and I took it on holiday with me to Neisner the last week. Uh, it's called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kaliniti, and it's a story, the extremely moving story, of a neurosurgeon who, who spends his life uh, honing his skills, becoming a fantastic neurosurgeon, being appointed at uh, Stanford uh, as one of the, the top neurosurgical psychologists, etc. And I mean, this guy is really absolutely brilliant. He marries, and then just before he gets his dream job, they discover that he has cancer. He has lung cancer. And it is the story of 
First of all, his striving uh, to become the best neurosurgeon he can and the story of uh, his life in, in the operating theater and the various people that he operates on, uh, which is quite moving and astonishing, and the story of his life, his wife, and how they react to the lung cancer and how he gets treated. And it is a, a marvelous, very moving picture that is given the forward shows you that he did actually die. He does die. And he writes this book um, about like a year and a half before he dies so that he can tell people exactly what happened and how his life went. And he has a child as well, which is also quite remarkable. It's a book that you have to be strong to read, but it's a book that rewards. It's called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalaniti, and it's 205 Rand, a marvelous book. Then uh, I've got a, a nonfiction here, South African nonfiction, by Martin Meredith. Uh, he's written a lot about South Africa, as everyone knows histories, gold mining, diamond, etc., etc. But he's written a book about the, the, the Wrights family. And if anyone knows the Wrights family, Denise Wrights uh, wrote the book Commando, uh, the most famous book about the Boer War, about his time in the Boer War. And this is a book about the family, who they are, where they are, where they came from, and their contributions to South Africa. It, it reads absolutely marvelously. He's a brilliant author. That's Martin Meredith. Uh, Afrikaner Odyssey, The Life and Times of the Rates Family. And that is 250 Rand. And while, let's go back to fiction. I've got a, a thriller here, a thriller that I really, really enjoyed. I think I talked to you about Orphan X. Uh, that was the first in the Orphans series. And uh, a great, great thriller. Well, this is the second one. It's called Nowhere Man. Now, our hero gets put into ridiculous uh, situations that no one can get out of, and he does get out of it. Now, I think the culminating escape is when he is in a, put in a, a, a Lexan plexiglass box that can only be opened by a fingerprint from someone, from a huge uh, a guard, and he gets out of that. It's wonderful. Great reading fast reading. Uh, it's a sort of book that you take away for the weekend and you really, really enjoy. Lovely fast reading. It's 295 Rand, The Nowhere Man by Greg Hurwitz and it's an Evan Smoke thriller. Then Marita van der Feyfer has just written a new book. Every one of her books is a, a huge bestseller and this is no different. It's called You Lost Me. It's a sort of romantic book set in Paris, but set around an author, a South African author, who has become disillusioned, left um, uh, the country. He'd shown great promise as a South African uh, writer of distinction, but he decides he's going to commit suicide. But I'm not going to give you any more. Marita van der Feyfer, she writes a brilliant book, her stuff is always extremely readable, very good reading, and it's called You Lost Me, and it's a novel by Marita van der Feyfer and 250 Rand. And let me just quickly mention, there's a new book about uh, Dr. James Barry. I'm sure you all know about James Barry. Um, he, she was the, the doctor, she was a female, and decided that she wanted to become a doctor and had to um, pretend to be a man for the whole of her life. It's a brilliant story. It's a marvelous story for our times and her times. And it's a story that has resonated through the ages. 
It's called Dr. James Barry, A Woman Ahead of Her Time by Michael Dupria and Jeremy Dronfeldt. And that's 365 Rand. Okay, that's what I've got for you this month. Cheers. Good reading. And here we have a pre-record of Philip Todras talking to Roger Ballon, internationally acclaimed photographer, recipient of numerous prestigious awards in photography and filmmaking with works in various major collections. Sure. The Theatre of Apparitions by Roger Ballon with a introduction by Colin Rhodes is a very treasured new possession which I have in my hand. I'm delighted to be talking to the man himself, Roger Ballon, about the book. Roger, I think let's start at the fact that, I mean, you are very well known, and as I said to you when we spoke the other day, mm. that I hope you don't mind me thinking of you as a well, rather scary person. So let's talk about a book which I found less scary, but more, and I like what Colin Rhodes said about it, these are spirit drawings. So would you like to start off by telling us how you got involved with this particular aspect, because it's not quite photography, it's photography as a medium rather than as the photo itself. Uh, you're, you're correct to a degree. In 2004, I was making a film at the women's prison in Boxburg, and I went into one of the cells, and on the window, on one of the windows, were uh, drawings. They were very uh, strange, surreal, primitive at the same time. And the cell itself was dark, but the windows had a luminosity, and the drawings sort of popped out from the dark. And I was really uh, amazed um at what I saw and I took a photograph and this uh, photograph went in my book Shadow Chamber it was the first one of these I did in 2004 and this stuck in my mind but at the same time I was working in a sort of warehouse type of space that had a lot of empty windows and this uh, idea from the woman's prison as I said stuck in my mind and I started to experiment with these windows in 2004-2005 and that was the beginning of the project and then I see you start collaborating with Margaret Rousseau. Margaret Rousseau, has she's been my assistant for the last 10 years, so she played a major role in helping me, assisting me, uh, creating with me uh, of these, for these images. Obviously it was your knowledge of light and shadow and grain and textures, all these sort of things that you know about photography, which obviously informed the process. Yeah, I mean, ultimately the final product is a photograph, so... If you didn't understand photograph and the chemistry of a photograph, the aesthetics of a black and white photograph, you, you could never take these. I mean, they were done for a camera, done for film. Um, and so I understood the process from beginning to end. If you didn't understand that uh, process, I, I don't think um, you could get where I got. And it's also very important to understand that this was an ongoing project from 2004 to 2013. So. It kept evolving, metamorphizing it itself and evolving in all sorts of ways. So it wasn't just a static thing that I came up with one way of making these pictures. There were many, many little steps and uh, roads that we that we took that um, added uh, another level to the images, added a, a variation to the images. Well, that's what to me is what's very different from this is just being a photograph where you grab a moment. Here you are, there's a process involved in finding the moment that allows you to get the image that you have in your mind, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're finding the moment in your mind. And also, it should be uh, stated that there is something about the moment taking place in these pictures. You can't predict how the, um, 
and the materials will work together. So you can see in a lot of the pictures like a cracking that sort of exists with the materials, and that cracking creates a luminosity and creates an aesthetic that is very responsible for the overall success of the picture. So if one goes back to this concept of the moment which pervades photography, there is a, a moment in these pictures that takes place that almost decides whether the picture works or doesn't work, and that moment is in some ways outside of me. Well, that's the most amazing thing, but, and yet you've managed to put them together in a series of chapters, and I'm going to title them Persona, Burlesque, Eros, Transmuted, Melancholy, Fragmentation, and Ethereal. And you've managed to somehow find the right spaces for these photos, and I couldn't help sometimes being highly amused, rather than scared, which are often with some of your images, that from my previous knowledge of your work. And I found the way the book was put together a very beautiful artwork in itself. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I thank you very much for your compliment. It was hard in the beginning to figure out how to put these images together because there's a, in some ways there's a similarity, but there's a difference, and I didn't want 92 images to be put on top of each other in some abstract way, so I felt the best way was to to break them into themes, and I made an accompanying video called The Theater of Apparitions. It's a five-minute video people can see on YouTube that, in a way, are made up of different acts or chapters. Well, I really would recommend The Theatre of Apparitions by Roger Ballon, and it's published by Thames and Hudson. And thanks to Thames and Hudson, Roger Ballon's uh, significant and brilliant book is up for grabs in our Easy Peasy competition question. And here's the question. Chocolate hens lay chocolate eggs for Easter. Which furry creature helps us hunt those eggs? Is it the Easter bunny? Is it the Easter cheetah? We're waiting for your calls on 
James Grace and on guitar playing Pavan by Tariga. Beverly Rose Muller, you highly recommend the remarkably spellbinding, instructive, utterly readable book. It's called The Iceberg, a memoir by Marion Coots. The gradual debilitating loss of two disease of somebody you love is an ordeal unlike any other. It is also something we are not trained to deal with, nor to handle the myriad of decisions that need to be made about treatment, care, food, finances, and personal shock. Yet there can surely be very few of us, unless you're particularly young or lucky, who have not experienced it, even at a remove. Visual artist Marion Coots's award-winning book, The Iceberg, about a husband Tom Lubbock's fight with his terminal brain tumour is an extraordinary account. When Tom, a distinguished literary and art journalist, was diagnosed in 2008 with a grade 4 brain tumour, they were both in their 40s with an 18-month-old son, Ev, who was learning to speak and negotiate the world around him while Tom was fighting a losing battle with his gradual loss of language and mobility. The irony of this was never lost on Coots as she began to record their final years together, as indeed did he in his autobiographical work, Until Further Notice, I Am Alive. With her help and his determination, he continued to turn in two newspaper articles a week, even as his vocabulary diminished. His grit was remarkable. Meanwhile, Marion was left with the demand of being mom, carer, advocate for his medical treatment, cook and coordinator of all that needed to be done, while trying to find her own feelings, place and identity in the inevitable roller coaster of medical ups and downs, and at the same time trying to live each day as a family to the full. They continued to go on family holidays, sometimes with friends, even after Tom had lost his mobility. The most astonishing aspect of The Iceberg is sharp and gifted and excoriating writing, especially impressive as this was her first book. She charts each step of their ordeal as it occurs, documenting the hopes, the fears, and the fury that she felt, the times when she hated what was happening so much she snapped Ed's toothbrush in two, her need to learn to drive, the emails to friends and support community, keeping them appraised of Tom's gradual decline and urging them to keep in touch, to visit, to write, and thanking them for their help. If you know someone in perilous helps, here's a tip. Don't be a stranger. All support is not only needed, but a lifeline. Marion could never have carried the huge task that she had to without a great deal of help. You are all welcome here, she would write over and again. Near Tom's end, she writes, the hospital was vertical. Beneath us, stacked like ballast, was our fellow cargo, layers and layers of the metropolitan sick, arranged in dense industrial warrens of gut, heart, bowel, bone, blood. But the hospice is horizontal. Its planes stretch out flat, and space is not at a premium. Much of her book is visceral, emotional, and acutely observant. This is a book we should all read before we need to deal with terminal illness, for it reveals a range of responses 
including exhaustion and personal need, that catches us unawares, as well as the human capacity for overcoming obstacles. It is remarkably spellbinding, instructive, utterly readable to the very inevitable end. Highly recommended. Eric Holm, you're an emeritus professor and former head of entomology at Pretoria University. You give weekly talks on a variety of radio stations and we're going to chat about your utterly fascinating new book. You've written eight others and this new one is called Insectopedia, The Secret World of Southern African Insects. You say it isn't a field guide. What is it then? Yeah, this is actually a storybook. <laughs> I, you know, over 50 years that I've been working with insects, you pick up so much interesting stuff, which is not actually uh, no, fit for scientific study, and it's also uh, not useful in any way. It's just plain interesting. And I decided that's uh, what most nature lovers would like to know. Uh, so I wrote a whole book on mainly the behavior and the ecology and the strange things that these insects do and can do. But it does have a field guide in the end. Eh? Uh, the last third of the book is a field guide, very beautiful illustrations. The thing is all in full color, over 200 pages of it. And Larry, and, uh, you, you, you talk about the ecology. What's the importance of insects in our ecology? Well, uh, just about everything. You know, three-quarters of all living creatures are insects. And what uh, few people realize is that the ecology on land is actually mostly driven by insects. Okay, the plants start it all off. But after that, uh, the insects take over, and the vertebrates are actually missable, eh? <laughs> <laughs> For instance, in a piece of grass felt, uh, uh, two-thirds of the grass is not eaten by cattle or game, it's eaten by insects, and they're just not noticed. That's why we underestimate them. And they're crucial. I mean, uh, bees, for instance, pollinate 80% of flowers. Now, if you uh, remove bees, you remove 80% of flowering plants eventually. Eh? So, no, they are absolutely driving the ecology on land. Well, we're busy destroying it. And, Eric, um, females come off rather well in the insect world. There's the, what was it, the queen oriental bee who was observed mating with 53 different males. I mean, that's a big number no, in anybody's that's, book. It's a record there. <laughs> <laughs> and then, 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 then there's the mantid who very sensibly eats her mate as they're mating. Yeah, no, the, the females have the first, first rank, but that is uh, throughout the biological nature, really, because they're the reproducers, they're the important ones. The males are just there for show and for carrying genes around. That's uh, that's their only use. The females usually look after the brood, and but the males are the prettiest. Eh? That you must admit, <laughs> because uh, they are the showpieces. And uh, to impress the females and each other, 
uh, the mayors are sometimes absurdly beautiful. <laughs> well, I think it, uh, that must be a male on the cover of your book, on the cover of Insectopedia. That's a grasshopper, and it's very beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Red and black, which are the warning colours to predators, yeah, these are they? warning colours. And, uh, I mean, this is also an interesting thing, because these warning colours are sort of international code in nature, and we've taken it over. Uh, because everywhere in nature, when you see a thing that's black uh, combined with white, yellow, or red, that thing is dangerous. The uh, black and white ones are for colorblind predators, and the ones with the yellow and red are for color vision. But uh, we've taken it over. If you think of it, all our warning signs for danger, for electricity and things like that, and road uh, hazards, it's the same combination, black with uh, yellow or red on it. Yeah, and uh, this is, of course, the, what we call aposematic colors, and insects use it a lot. And a lot of them are not dangerous and just pretend to be. Eh? They mimic. And they mimic the ones that are dangerous. <laughs> yeah. And, Eric, now, uh, other astonishing <laughs> facts come out. A fly has 26,000 eyelids. Yeah. And, and then then there's a moth, was it, I can't remember now, was it the emperor moth, whose sense of smell can be compared with us tasting a grain of sugar in a swimming pool. Yeah, I mean, yeah now, now the technology these things have, I think there we can still quite learn quite a lot. And um, I mean, there's a whole direction now in, in engineering called bioengineering where people are really trying to duplicate what uh, these insects do because they have a head start of 200 million years uh, 300 million years before us eh? and uh, the, the technology they've developed is just astounding I mean there are things like uh, fireflies that make absolutely cold light and glowworms um, yeah and uh, the glowworms and fireflies, yeah. And then uh, things like uh, the nomoptoktokis that have selective absorber reflective colors, which just absorb, for instance, infrared and reflect all the other wavelengths, which enables them to run throughout the day on these hot dunes. They are wonderful technologies. Yes, those, uh, hot, those hot dunes you say in the book get up to 60 degrees centigrade. Yeah, 70. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, that they can't survive. They have to have some cooling mechanism. Most of them then run on uh, very long stretched legs. And as you go away from the sand surface, the temperature drops. The first centimeter, it can already drop 15 degrees. So it makes sense to have these long spidery legs and run high up. Yeah, that's one of the tricks they do. And Eric, we're really out of time so very rapidly. I want to know when the mantid is eating her male, starting with the head, how yeah. come he goes on mating? That's the strange thing. Insects are not like us. Eh? Their, their brain is not centralized in the head. They've got a whole row of little brains all along their body. So any part of the body is virtually self-sustaining. <laughs> if you cut, a, for instance, a wasp in half, the tail will live for days and the front part will fly off and will be quite happy. So they have a different organization. They are in that way still very much like the primitive worms where the brain is not 
central. You know, it's it's decentralized. Mm. We were talking to Eric Holm, Dr. Eric Holm, about his totally absorbing, wonderful book. It's called Insectopedia, The Secret World of Southern African Insects. And do remember that Eric's book is one of our giveaways in our Easy Peasy competition. And here again is the question. Chocolate hens lay chocolate eggs for Easter. Which furry creature helps us to hunt for those eggs? Is it the Easter cheetah? Is it the Easter bunny? We're waiting for your calls on 021-401-1013. Mike Fitzjames, again you're doing your best to wildly whack our nerves with two thrillers. Good afternoon, Gurry. I have two interesting thrillers for your listeners this month. The first of which is Sirens by Joseph Knox. When Aidan Waits, a junior detective, is sent to the penthouse home of Isabel Rossiter, a runaway, aged 17, he finds a manipulative father who is an MP with many powerful friends. Retracing Isabel's steps through a dark nocturnal world, Waits discovers something else an intelligent girl who is scared to death. As he investigates her story and the unsolved disappearance of another young woman just like her, he realizes Isabel was right to run away. Next, Waits is cut loose by his superiors. He is stalked by an unseen killer and becomes dangerously attracted to the wrong woman. He's truly out of his depth and running out of time. How can he save the girl when he can't even save himself. This was a great read, brutal and darkly stylish. My second choice is Live by Night by Dennis Lehan. Joe Cochran is 19 when he meets Emma Gould. Joe is a small-time thief in Boston in the 1920s, and when taking part in a robbery, Joe is told to handcuff Emma while his accomplices raid the casino where she's working. Somehow, this leads to Joe falling head over heels for Emma and his life changing forever. Meeting Emma was the beginning of Joe's rise to become one of the nation's most feared gangsters. It's now a journey beset by violence, double-crossing, drama, and pain. This is a crystal clear journey into the very soul of Prohibition-era America. It was absolutely fascinating. That's it for this month. My choices were... Sirens by Joseph Knox and Live by Night by Dennis Lehane. Enjoy your reading.
flautist Liesel Stoltz with Debussy's Paul Egyptienne. Lesson 17. The Chinese man who amazingly escaped from Mao's lethal labour camps. The book is called No Wall Too High, One Man's Extraordinary Escape from Mao's Darkest Prison and it's by Zhu Hongji. No Wall Too High, One Man's Extraordinary Escape from Mao's Infamous Labour Camps is a riveting read. It's the autobiographical work of Shu Hongqi, translated from the Chinese by Erling Ho. Shu Hongqi came from a middle-class family and grew up in occupied China. When he was 12, the Japanese were defeated and there was a struggle for leadership between the communists and the Kumatung party. I had never realized that China had so many problems left to solve. Tragically, the true depth of China's problems was still to be revealed. The Hundred Flowers campaign was a call by the ruling Communist Party for open dialogue. Xu, who was a member of the Communist Party and a medical student at the time, saw this as an honest invitation for engagement and so criticized the regime. His actions backfired, and Shu, along with so many, was declared a rightist. Mao is reported to have said, rip him to pieces. Shu wasn't the only person to be ripped to pieces. 550,000 men and women were sent to labor camps. It's estimated Mao's bloody regime caused the deaths of 45 million people. No Wall Too High is a concise, gripping narrative. Never once does it ramble. The translator, Erling Ho, provides excellent footnotes. And as a reader, one never gets lost in translation. 300 pages fly by because the book has it all. Easy to read history, the triumph of good over evil, a mother and son bond, and a nail-biting Hollywood could only ever dream of escape. Xu may well have been the only person to escape a Chinese labor camp and survive, and his manuscript is thus one of a kind. The seminal account gives a face to the muted millions of Mao's cultural revolution. Xu's character arc progresses from a relatively carefree youngster to a deeply focused and determined man. In a few days, I would be fighting a battle with only two possible outcomes, life or death. Shu Hunky's original manuscript was published in Hong Kong, as the subject matter was too contentious for a Chinese publishing house. No Wall Too High, One Man's Extraordinary Escape from Mao's Infamous Labor Camps, is still banned in mainland China. All the more reason we owe it to Shu Hongke to read about his long journey to freedom. Melvin Miller, two art books. One is Hanging on a Wire, photographs by Sophia Klauser. The other is 1994, photographs by Peter Hucho. Books of photography occupy a curious and sometimes a disconcerting space. They differ from others in the library, in the first instance, because they are meant to prick the eye, not to see words, sentences and paragraphs on a page, and to interpret those meaningfully, but to engage with the visual and accept that interpretive challenge. Two very smart such books, let's call them new art publications, remind powerfully of that shift, that difference. But they also show that there are many ways in which stories can be told, poetry constructed and meaning communicated. And although they come from two vastly different sources and points of departure, they have much to say about and to contemporary South Africa. 
Hanging on a Wire features photographs by Sophia Klaasser, a young Namakwalanda who, at the age of 16, was given a cheap instant camera to take pictures of her community. 1994 is the latest book of a project by the distinguished Cape Town-based photographer Peter Hichu. Photographs from this series are currently on view in a very large exhibition about South Africa at the Rex Museum in Amsterdam. Just opposing the two superbly produced books, the first by the elegant local Fourth War Books in Johannesburg, the second by the prestige International House Bristol, takes one on a wonderful journey to people and their heartlands. But it also brings up enticing thoughts about the process and meaning of photography. Sophia Klaaser was born and grew up in Polsuk and spent most of her life in this faraway, distant, isolated pastoral village. Locally known as Fakie, an endearing nickname, she recorded herself and her people over a number of years by means of this, the simplest of snapshot cameras. Hers turned out to be an astounding embedded gaze, and the pictures are a remarkable record, frank, colorful, and deeply meaningful. Balsuk is a distant settlement in the arid northwest, deep in Amakwaland, 32 kilometers from Garis, the nearest town. It is because of that remoteness and its long history that socio-economic researchers, including Rick Ruder and Tim Hoffman, took an interest in the area and people. It is them that started the small empowerment experiment by giving the locals simple cameras to take pictures. Ruder and Hoffman, who together with other contributors wrote lively accompanying essays to this book, met class at the age of 12 or 13 in the late 1990s. They gave her a camera, and the rest is history. From the start, she showed an extraordinary skill with a simple instrument, engaging with the locals, recording their lives with dynamic directness, colorful, unadored, and utterly humane in its lively simplicity. An inborn sense of the aesthetic framed her imagery, drawing us readers deeper into the truth of the environment and vernacular. There are many self-pictures, some of clearly close friends and family, personalizing the project and underlining the irony in which many smiling, happy, posing faces front the melancholy of poor survival existence. From that moment, the instant click, optimism trumps as escape, but the message is delivered. Peter Yehu's photographic essay too dwells in a spirit of optimism, in the sense that childhood offers no alternative but hope. The title of 1994 refers to South Africa's moment of democracy as well as the year of the genocide in Rwanda. In 2014, he returned to the latter country and, as he writes, whereas on previous visits to Rwanda I barely saw any children, this time I noticed them everywhere. His own after-democracy children too triggered the thoughts of their place and future in the modern world. Combining carefully set-up portraiture of children from both countries, he set out to explore the realms of their untainted innocence visually questioning their engagement with a world that holds their parents' history hostage. Like classes, the images are highly personalized, but in typical Hugo style, the images are carefully constructed and considered, allowing the individuality even of a child to occupy the oculus space meaningfully, or to liberate themselves in front of the sympathetic, inquisitive lens. The images are exquisite in their vivid colorfulness, the dramatic deportment and the wonderful aura of presence that the camera seemed to capture even from the most shy or playful of subjects. Yet it is clear that Hihu 
not simply set out to take advantage of a viewer's natural empathy when faced with childhood. The carefully styled placements of kids, the considered environments, trigger an edginess, closing those questions about childhood in our contemporary society, in our current human condition. Whereas Hiku has always been clear about naming and acknowledging, these youngsters remain nameless, not because of identity necessarily, but to transform their roles in the questions we all must ask about innocence lost or gained. It won't be an understatement to say both 1994 by Peter Hiku and Hanging on a Wire by Sophia Klaasa are important visual documents of our time. Sadly, Feiki Klaasa died just as the book came out to print. Philippa Schaefitz, the District 6 Heiskom Base, a food and memory cookbook. It was more than a place, writes Richard Reeve in his novel Buckingham Palace, District 6. We knew the district was dirty and rotten. Their newspapers told us so often enough. But what they didn't say was that it was also warm and friendly, that it contained humans, that it was never a place, that it was a people. District 6 in the book, it tells us that it was a vibrant community of Afrikaners, English, Jews, Africans and Indians. It was lively. There were shops, butchers, bakers, bubby shops, a local name for the Indian grocers, a dairy, even live chickens and eggs from a poultry, a fish market. The fruit and vegetable cart came on Wednesdays and Fridays the Star Bioscope, the legendary Crescent Restaurant. Down the road in town was the Wellington Fruit Growers, a source of good cheap buys. From this they were forced to move to the bleak Cape Flats far out of town. In 2006, Tina Smith, curator of the District 6 Museum, started a series of weekly craft, design and storytelling workshops about food and family life in District 6. Fourteen women got together to remember and to reminisce, to exchange stories. Their oral history was recorded on video and translated into text. At the District 6 Museum is a name cloth, reams of cloth hand-embroidered with the signatures of former residents. At the workshops, these women recorded the recipes of their mothers, grandmothers and aunties. The charming, individually designed, hand-embroidered recipe tray cloths that evolved out of these host combos, literally home kitchen, workshops, are included in the book, plus all the memoirs of the women who participated in the group and all their precious snapshots. Food photographs capture the style of cooking. Fine portraits of the District Sixes today, also by Jacques de Villiers, capture their essence. These are their traditional recipes, simple, delicious dishes. With little income, locally available ingredients were innovatively stretched to feed big families. They called it langsos, meaning making food go further. There was a lot of sharing going on. My house was your house, your house was my house. And on occasion, shared with friends and neighbors a table, a table spread with food. There were lots of soups and plenty of breedies, mutton-based, often just meaty bones, but stretched with pumpkin, cabbage, sugar beans or green beans. There were curries, mild, 
English curries were favoured, made with Cartwright's curry powder, a little vinegar and apricot jam. Sugar bean curry with mutton or mince. Afal was cheap, curry tripe and trotters with beans. Salted snook was braised with cabbage, tomatoes, onions, chilies and potatoes, known as smoor snook. Pickled fish, always on Good Friday. Coo sisters were popular with everyone. They were spiced and sprinkled with coconut. Never cook sisters, which were Dutch. My Jewish grandmother had lived in District 6. She often baked small tarts with a jam and coconut filling that I loved. In the cookbook, I learned their name and origin. In 1936, the Herzogi was created in celebration of Prime Minister Herzog's promise to enfranchise coloured women. But when he went back on his promise, the tart was reinvented, iced half with pink, half with chocolate, and named Twiergefrierki, Two-Faced. The book is a great tribute to a community with a very rich culture. It took 10 years to put the book together and was launched to commemorate the 50th year since the declaration of District 6 as a white group area. It's a quivery publication and it sells for 385 rand. Grace again with uh, his CD Granada and that was Canto de Laude. Cindy Morris, you enjoyed The Park by Gail Schimmel. I picked up The Park by local author Gail Schimmel in search of a lighter read in between some heavier ones and thought the blurb which reads good mothers take their children to the park hinted at a fluffy, mumsy, friendship type story. I was wrong. Schimmel, who has also written under her married name, Gail van Onselen, and runs a consultancy specialising in advertising law, has delivered a family drama with legal thriller undertones that nudges readers out of their comfort zones. Set in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg, the story of Rebecca meeting two other mothers with young daughters, the same age as her Amy, while spending time in the neighbourhood park, could be transplanted to many similar communities in South Africa. While she doesn't need new friends, becoming mother to Amy, through adoption, has opened a new world to Rebecca. Rebecca and Amy are, writes Schimmel, the ultimate anomaly at the playground, a white woman with her cappuccino-coloured baby. 
Rebecca soon forms fast friendships with flamboyant Rose, an intriguing single mum Lilith, and their three daughters form a great bond. But soon, events turn peculiar. Rebecca finds she's left to look after one of the girls too often for too long, and is sometimes placed in frightening what-if situations. One of the trio of friends becomes somewhat competitive around the degree of loyalty among them. It is horrifying the lengths to which she will go to prove who is the better mother. On top of this, Rebecca, who is also an accomplished artist, with a supportive and loving husband, Sean, grapples with whether to try to become pregnant through fertility treatment. She loves Amy unconditionally and is concerned how a biological child will change their family dynamic. Contributing to a context of unease are Sean's parents, who have never accepted Amy as a granddaughter, and then there's the unknown identity and whereabouts of Lilith's child's mysterious father. Schimmel writes with authority on the legal wranglings surrounding children and their rights, as well as the role of the media in representing and misrepresenting stories that impact the lives of real and ordinary people. There is much that gives the reader pause for thought in the park, and when I put it down, I felt as if it were a story that had happened in my own community. It was that relatable. Luckily, we'll have the chance to meet the author soon as she's speaking on a panel at the Franschuk Literary Festival in May. So if you'd like to hear her in conversation with other authors on the path they've followed from conceptualizing their books to getting them into print and then into the public eye and hands, best you'd book your tickets soon. The Park was one of those stories whose characters linger in your mind long after you've read the last word. Gail Schimmel delivers local stories with global relevance, and I like her style. And as Cindy says, you can hear, you could hear Gail Schimmel at the very well-planned Franschuk Literary Festival, May 19, 20 and 21. And for details, www.flf.co.za. Thank you for your calls, which we always enjoy. And there are four winners today. Just let me see if I can find them. Uh, Maureen Malvahal, it looks like. Mike De Beer. Um, Janet Hallett, or Malice. Sorry, I can't quite read that. And John Cartwright. We're going to be ringing you straight after this. Do stay by your telephones. And it's matinee up next and Amanda Burta's book kisser at this same time of Wednesday, April 19. Do remember that FMR Book Choice will be podcast soon on www.fmr.co.za. Click podcast, click book choice. From Rick Everett, who kindly compiled the music, and from Matabata Bachadebi, who cleverly kept the show on the road, and from me, Gory Bose-Taylor, it's Happy Easter Reading. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. FMR.